Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. A warning that worse is yet to come as Russia continues its advance inside Ukraine. Our news correspondent Sarah King and camera operator Joni McKenna join us live from Medicam, Poland. Backing Batchik, Labour Party TDs look set to back Ivana Batchik to lead the party into the future after the shock resignation of Alan Kelly. And claims of psychological warfare in Sinn Féin by a departing TD. Later, a look back at other big stories of the week. Get in touch on Twitter with your comments and questions on hashtag TonightVMTV. Tonight, the Ukrainian president has called for direct talks with Vladimir Putin as the Russian invasion of Ukraine continues. Officials in the country say the death toll also continues to rise. There has been one small breakthrough today, however. Russian and Ukrainian officials have agreed to set up temporary humanitarian corridors to allow people to flee from targeted cities. Thousands continue to flee the Russian assault inside Ukraine and spill across its borders. The bulk of those leaving are crossing into Poland. Well, our news correspondent Sarah King and camera operator Joni McKenna are in Medica, one of the main border crossings on the Polish-Ukraine border. And Sarah joins us now from there. Um, Sarah, if you could bring us up to date on what the situation is like there right now. You've been there hours spending time seeing families, um, mothers and children, relatives crossing over that border looking for refuge. Yes, Claire. So uh, we've been here since early this morning. We travelled down from Krakow this morning and it's been incredibly difficult to see the scenes here at the border, Claire, because I suppose uh, sometimes we see the pictures on television, but the reality of it is quite stark. I mean, I spoke about this earlier on. I mean, what we're actually seeing is women and children because they've been separated from their partners on the Ukrainian side of the border. And as they're coming across, there is just a sombre sort of quietness. A lot of the women are just quietly sobbing as they come through, uh, minding their children, you know, and in some cases women are handling uh, three and four children by themselves they're trying to perhaps uh, push buggies keep children safe it is just uh, a scene that it should not be happening in 2022 to be frank about it it is just incredibly difficult and uh, in terms of where they go well for some of them they are lucky to have uh, friends and family who are here uh, to welcome them and to offer them refuge but for others uh, they simply don't have a place to go and that is the challenge for them I think uh, in particular Claire I suppose the situation with children as I mentioned 
mentioned there is something that has really struck uh, both Joni and myself today as we've worked here uh, just to see those small children coming through the innocence in their faces and them uh, not knowing exactly what is going on I mean for those parents you have to put yourself in their shoes and imagine that uh, they made the choice to flee their home to flee their country for the safety of those children UNICEF reporting today that up to uh, half a million children have now been displaced in this conflict. It's definitely very different. War, war is a whole different animal and, and what it's doing to some of these people and you see it's only women and children coming through and we found that and heard from a lot of the, the local organisers that the ratio is uh, one adult to three children because what a lot of the families are doing, some of them can't leave, some of them won't leave but they want to get their children out so they're giving them, they're putting them in the care of another family member or a friend and so seeing that and seeing a lady walk through with tiny kids and trying to help them shuffle along when the kids haven't got a clue. It's, it's terrible. They must be completely overwhelmed by that situation, Zara. And also tonight we're hearing about four Irish babies born to a surrogate, surrogate mothers in Kyiv who have been safely evacuated. What can you tell us about that? Yes, Claire, well, very little information, to be honest, on that one. All we know is that four babies born to surrogate mothers, as you said, have been safely evacuated. We have no details in terms of where they've been evacuated to, but I am told uh, that they haven't been brought to Poland. Uh, no details as of yet, but we are told uh, that they are now doing quite well and they are safe, and the plans are, of course, to get them back to uh, Ireland as quickly as possible. I suppose, look, in terms of kids, I'm, I'm not sure if we have a clip. We were, we're due to hear, I think, from Chris, who's a young 17-year-old who uh, crossed the border here in the last couple of hours. Uh, just to give you a bit of an insight into his story, Claire. Um, Chris and his family uh, were, I suppose, trying to stay home as much as possible. They were living in Kharkiv. I suppose they wanted to try and uh, sit it out for as long as possible. And it came to the point where really they had no choice but to pack up and leave. And that was a difficult decision. He came with his mother and left behind his brother uh, and his grandmother. And that's what people talk about as they cross the border here, Claire, is the people that they've left behind and they worry about them. Another interesting point is that uh, despite the fact that they are devastated and that they are going through this difficult time. They're internally grateful for the support that they have received from around the world. And also, uh, they remain quite hopeful, Claire. All of them saying, uh, we just want to go home. From the moment they cross over here, they're telling us, uh, we just want to go home as soon as possible. And that is uh, their focus. But the question is, when exactly that will be? Okay. Um, uh, also on this, Sarah, just um, about people who wish to donate. And we're hearing of huge donation drives happening here in order to bring aid to those who need it most. Um, but are the systems overwhelmed there? How are they coping with, with this aid that's coming in? And what's the best advice that you've heard about how aid should be, should be brought into the country? Is it through cash donations rather than dry goods being sent over from people here? Yeah, look, that's certainly what we're seeing on the ground here, Claire. I suppose look, people like massive hearts and, and great kindness being expressed in this dark time. And we see it uh, reflected in people uh, turning up from all over Europe, driving here with buses, uh, truckloads and vans with uh, things like toiletries and uh, warm blankets and clothing. But the reality here is that they're actually uh, somewhat overwhelmed with that. We know for a fact that a, a 
van that came from Birmingham today full of supplies was actually turned away and they were uh, instead redirected to another place where they could drop off those goods and we were told they were going to be brought uh, inside Ukraine where they were badly needed at the moment but uh, in terms of what's happening in the border regions I suppose they are a little bit overwhelmed in terms of all of those deliveries coming through because um, just to the side here as you come over the border what you actually have here is just a supermarket here which uh, to be fair to them has stayed open into the night and there's a lot of warmth and heat it's minus one now here at the moment so people are able to go into the supermarket to get warm and they're sitting inside in the porch these are people who have no place to go um, and they're there with their children inside the porch of the supermarket and then just behind the supermarket in what would be I suppose their delivery space um, you have kind of temporary soup kitchens set up and there's uh, hot drinks there and uh, those warm jackets and blankets and things are there but you know there will be some people Claire um, who will come over the border who will have you know have the means to support themselves in terms of being able to maybe find accommodation like I say some will go to friends and family mm -hmm. perhaps some will uh, move on into the bigger cities and maybe book accommodation for themselves and then there will be others who um, unfortunately told us this evening that they don't know where they're going to sleep for the next couple of days so it's a real mix but if people want to help I suppose the best advice is to make a financial donation at this point point. Um, docus.ie is the website where you'll find out all the details of all the NGOs linked to Ireland who are working uh, on the ground within the border and within Ukraine and that is certainly the best place to go if you'd like to make a financial contribution. Okay thank you Zara King. Zara joining us with the latest from the Polish-Ukraine border. Thank you for joining us tonight and bringing us up to date on the situation there in Medica. Well, joining me now in studio is Managing Director of Edelman Global Advisory in Dublin, Fergal Purcell, People Before Profit TD, Paul Murphy, Fianna Fáil TD, Barry Cowan, and journalist and columnist with the Irish Examiner, Alison O'Connor. You're all very welcome along to the programme tonight. Um, we've heard from Zara there. She's given an in insight really here into the humanitarian crisis that's unfolding, Alison. Um, it's devastating and it's stark to hear, isn't it? And we know... We're hearing of the numbers fleeing. There's going to be more people coming through those borders seeking refuge in the days and weeks to come. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just heartbreaking to look at those that footage and to, to look at the those children. And as Zara said, not really understanding what uh, what's going on. And um, I suppose we need to remember as well that just like ourselves, Ukraine has just been through a pandemic as well, and the you know all of all of the, what that involved over the last couple of years and the psychological effect of that, apart from anything else. Um, I guess I think this week uh, the government has shown that um, has shown leadership on it. Really, I think as I'd say in terms of. Um, expressing um, their concern for Ukrainian people, obviously for speaking very strongly about what Vladimir Putin has done, but also in terms of our accepting um, of refugees. I know it's very difficult to say how many people that there are going to be, could be up to 20,000. And I think it was right that Taoiseach saying today that, um, I think it was it today or, 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 or yesterday where he said that this will be a lot bigger and it's hard to get your head around and even for us I think after after Covid and all of that it is hard to go straight into something as monumental as this mm -hmm. even though I think peop Irish people are really identifying with it but what's going to ha how long it could go on how many uh, displaced people there could be and, and what that will mean even for people's bottom lines uh, in terms of inflation and the cost of things and all of that there's, there's an awful lot to take on board financially, psychologically, in every way. Yeah, in, in, our, in our efforts here, um, 
Barry, uh, government officials were meeting today to discuss how to how we're going to manage this situation, how we are going to help people um, that are fleeing Ukraine and seeking refuge here. How is all that going? Um, obviously, it's had to be turned around very quickly. We've already had many people arriving into the country now. Initially, maybe they have places to stay. Arrangements have already been made for those early arrivals, but that's not going to be the case um, for the thousands more who are expected to come here in, in the time to come. Yeah, look, it's, 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 it's a very volatile situation. It's changing rapidly and the numbers are growing daily. And all the while, the abhorrence of us all for what's happening there is all too evident in, in tonight's report and in others that we've seen. I think the Cabinet met today to begin to put some shape and organisation around the different strands that need to be uh, tackled here. You, you know, you have the political and diplomatic engagement that involves unity of purpose amongst all of us in, 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 in representative roles, the EU, the unification that's there in relation to the effort and the sanctions, and the UN and the UN Security Council. So there, there are four strands that have to be managed, managed just, effectively. Just on, just on the humanitarian crisis yeah. that we're talking about and, 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 and management of that. Yeah, well, you the economic... we're equipped to, to turn this round quickly? Well, look, you the economic and social impact and the effect that that will have on our own economy, on the European economy, and that will be great too. So that's another strand that has to be managed. And then, of course, you have the humanitarian effort. And that will involve various departments working together, working with their EU counterparts, ensuring that there's a united effort on the part of all member states. And we commend and appreciate the effort and the magnificent leadership that's been shown by the Polish uh, society and its, its, its country, Moldova, uh, Hungary, others. But again, you know, the, you've seen our EU ministers in different levels meeting regularly every day to coordinate an effort that, 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 that matches the, the expectations and the willingness to stay on yeah. the part of the Irish people as yeah. well. Uh, Paul Murphy, on this, um, we've heard that the government won't be found wanting when it comes to um, the aid effort here and to helping those people worst affected by what's happening in Ukraine. Yeah, I mean, the, the scale of the humanitarian catastrophe here is immense. I mean, already, what we're just over one week into the invasion and you're talking about a million refugees estimates that it may go up to between four and seven million people fleeing out of uh, Ukraine. So it's, it's huge. And um, I think it is very important that the signal goes out that the borders of Europe are open, that the borders of Ireland are open, that everybody fleeing from Ukraine is welcome. And something important there, I think, is to say that that goes regardless of skin colour or nationality, um, because there have been quite concerning reports in multiple established media. It's not just one or two things, or just social media now, it's CNN, it's time, talking about effectively black people yeah. who are coming out of Ukraine, being separated into different lines, being left in some cases to wait for four days without food, being mistreated by parts of the Ukrainian military, I presume it's a, it's a minority, and then also facing mistreatment and racism by Polish border guards, um, and then also facing, when they get into Poland, the prospect of kind of far-right gangs seeking these people out, saying that they're lesser in some way. So it's very important that all pressure is brought to bear to say, no, this goes for everybody, everybody is welcome. Um, Fergal, just talking about the situation on the ground that's leading to, to obviously people to flee, to want to get out, um, and, and Vladimir Putin saying, you know, invasion is going as planned. Um, to give people a background, you, you do have that military background of ser ser serving in the forces here. Um, and from your perspective, 
he he sincerely obviously believes that things are going as planned. I would certainly seem from the number of casualties we are seeing that this is every bit as devastating as we'd been worried about. Well, it's, it's following a pattern that a lot of his uh, involvement in military operations in other jurisdictions have followed, that when the initial kind of nuanced approach of trying to go in and behead the government doesn't work, they mass forces and they just bomb. It happened in Aleppo, it happened in Grozny, and that's what's happening here, unfortunately. And they're using illegal weapons. They're bombing indiscriminately. Um, I'm not sure, there's a lot of commentary around, you know, it doesn't look like Putin's plan is working. I'm not sure what the plan was in the first place. Because, I mean, on a pure basic military strategic level, they come in from the north, they come in from the uh, east, and they come in from the south. And to some degree, that has been somewhat successful. But he went into the Donbass, he kind of uh, engaged in military activity there. There was no reaction from Europe at that point. We're kind of skating past that fairly quickly. There has been massive coherence on part of the EU, on part of governments. And by the way, it won't be just governments on, you know, that will help to solve this. Business, believe it or not, are going to land a serious punch in that economy. And that, that's what's going to happen on the far side. But in terms of the military strategy, I'm not sure that whatever strategy was in place in the first place, either is working or if that's a good thing, because when he reverts to type, it's pretty appalling. Mm. Um, let's just, when we talk about our response to all of this, just have, have a little listen to what Tónis de Lía Varadkar um, had to say uh, in the Dáil today. He was speaking about Ireland and our neutrality, essential, that, essentially that conversation that is now being had. He said, we'll have to increase uh, military spending over the coming years. And he says that despite neutrality, Ireland cannot assume that it, it is under no threat of attack. Take a listen. The assumption that we've made uh, for 70 years now is that nobody would attack us because we're a country that's neutral militarily. Ukraine was neutral militarily. It wasn't part of any uh, military alliance. It was attacked because it was politically part of the West, or at least wanted to be politically part of the West. And we make the assumption that even if we are attacked, the British and the Americans will come and save us anyway. And I'm not sure that's the kind of assumption a sovereign country like ours should make. Okay, and certainly, you know, it, the, the tone has changed around all of this and that, that, that neutral policy that we've had for, for decades now, Paul Murphy, certainly the conversation is steering towards, um, is this the future or should we change? Should we become more militarily allied? Uh, what, what do you think about this conversation? Is it good to have it or are you worried now about, given, I suppose, our, our, our aid and helping towards military aid in Ukraine, where this is all, where this is all going? Yeah, I, I'm very concerned about it. Um, I think in Ireland and right across Europe, um, a certain shock doctrine is taking place to use the righteous horror of people against the brutal invasion by Putin of Ukraine to try to drive a process of militarisation of the EU and undermining of neutrality. So if you look, for example, at the European Parliament resolution that was passed uh, a couple of days ago and was widely referred to as, oh, it's a, it's a resolution condemning the invasion of Ukraine, it, it wasn't just doing that. It was calling for increased military stand spending in every European state. It was calling for increased integration with NATO. It was calling for investment in fossil fuel, LNG infrastructure. Then we have... This by Leo Varadkar today, we had a media interview for him on Tuesday, 
basically saying we're going to do away with Ireland's policy of, of neutrality. Is that and what he was basically saying? I, I, Is that what I, he was saying? You're shaking your head there, Fargo. I think that's what he was launching an assault on. And I, that, that's a long-standing I mean, well, I mean, attempt was... by lots of people in Fine Gael, and now they see the, okay. attempt, the, well, the, the, well, the chance to go for it. Well, he was talking about increasing uh, defence spending to, you know, €3 billion. Euro. He said... Alison, that he doesn't agree with that is too much. We have other priorities and demands, which a lot of people would agree with when they look at the other problems that this country has. But he does think that we need to increase spending. We need to pay military personnel more. We need to be able to monitor our own seas. We need better equipment. Um, we need well, radar over our yeah. airspace. Would you agree with that? I think that it's interesting to, to, to hear the language Paul uses in terms of shock doctrine. Normally when people talk speak about a shock doc, it's a, uh, you're talking about something almost manufactured or that has been multiplied or well, exaggerated. It means using a real thing to yeah. pursue an agenda they already have. Yeah, that's but that's it, what the, the Naomi God, Klein shock doc Paul, is about. Paul, if that wasn't a shock, I don't know what was, what's yeah, yeah. happened, Agreed. you know, in the, last, in the last while. And I think... Um, we, our neutrality has uh, served us quite well, I think, up to this point. But the events of the last uh, nine to ten days, I think, have shown that we are more than overdue a discussion on it. And I think it's interesting that while Leo Varadkar has been out in front and centre, I haven't heard the Taoiseach disagreeing too much with what he said. He's, the Taoiseach spoke about this yesterday. Yeah. And I think that uh, Irish people, you might say, would say, well, we're still neutral. But you could argue that we haven't been at all. We are certainly not politically neutral over the last couple of days. We've been out there front and centre, which I'm very glad to say we have been. Um, we are militarily neutral. Um, but what people do, I don't think we even have had a mature enough conversation mm. for us all to understand what, what really yeah. does that mean. And I think, so I think we that's need, the yeah. question about what yeah. neutrality yeah. Um, yeah. means so it's in not the world clear, right it's not, I don't now, think it's a conversation it? that we could have right now, but I think we would all acknowledge all has well, changed. That, all has changed. Yeah. And I think we even saw, whenever it was now, was it six weeks ago, when the Russians were threatening to do those maritime manoeuvres with their navy, um, how utterly exposed we were. We wouldn't even have been able to, like, to, to monitor what that. they were like, doing. We can, we and can... our, I'll finish on this point. Yeah. You're mentioning the three billion. That's the top option of this recent uh, commission that looked at our defence forces. You know, there are other lesser expensive options. But the bottom line is that over the last 10 years, particularly, the, 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 those in power in government have run down our defence forces to the... I mean, they haven't mm -hmm. an arse in their trousers now. So that's yeah. the joke of it all, given what has just happened. Yeah, uh, Barry, you know, clearly, you know, our, the, the spending on, on our defence forces leaves an awful lot to be desired, that we're at this point, that when we have an issue out at, at, at our seas, we have fishermen going out to, to suss out what's going on and taking it up with the Russian ambassador. Um, and and we're, 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 we need the RAF to help um, to manage our airspace. Uh, what's going on there? And, no, look, and don't the, we need to invest? The Programme for Government made a commitment to do an investigation, to compile a report, to make recommendations to government. That has been done. The job and duty of government now is to respond to that. And I expect and hope that they will insofar as they can. And as the Taoiseach said, there's three billion sought. There's priorities to be to be decided upon in relation to other commitments, but that there has to be a massive injection into the well-being of our, 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 our defence forces. Do you think we, accept we should remain neutral? In relation to neutrality, I think the immediacy of our response is what's, what's vital at this stage. There's provision within the EU system to allow a country defend itself 
against aggression, which is illegal, which is barbaric, and any country worth its salt, such as ours, should be behind that and be thankful that there is a provision by which we can make a contribution. That contribution is going, specifically it said, towards non-lethal weapons, irrespective of what it's going to. There's 500 million being made available to allow those people in that army, in that country, respond effectively to the Russian would you, onslaught. Would you like it not to be non-lethal weapons and not to I, be putting I, fuel I, in the glad, tanks, but I'm more paying glad, for the I'm tanks? I'm glad that the European community, the European Union, the European model, the, democrat, the free democratic societies that is contained within it, has the where of it all to agree a programme that can respond effectively and work together with the, U with the UK and the US and other allies to ensure then that the issues of sanctions, as, 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 as Fergus has said, has the potential to yeah. hit Russia hard where I, it hurts and that's in their I pockets. That, and that might allow the Russian people to turn against this. Yeah, monster. and I guess the whole steer of the conversation that's also been brought up in recent days is about NATO and mm. Ireland and the mm. question being asked that no one would have thought of, yeah. um, should Ireland join NATO? Well, what Barry's referring to earlier is the mutual assistance clause. And just mm -hmm. to talk about neutrality for a brief second, if I could, because it, it relates directly to NATO. Our neutrality has always been nuanced. It is not a binary issue. And the expression of nuance, for example, is that fuel that you describe and that constructive abstention that we engaged in when we were uh, making that contribution uh, towards that 9 million, that EU fund. And as Barry says, isn't it fantastic that we're in a position to make that contribution? I just need to think we need to tap the brakes a little bit in the conversation around neutrality. We need to, we need to solve the problem that's in front of us. To solve the problem that's in front of us. And I was giving this a lot of thought over the last 48 hours. We need to have a really slow, considered conversation around neutrality and not have it in the context, just in the context of a fraught environment. And why not use the Citizens' Assembly to start exactly. that conversation? It solved a lot of social problems for us in relation to marriage equality, in relation to the repeal of the eighth. A slow, considered conversation around that. But make no mistake clear, if we don't solve the problem that's in front of us, doing exactly what we can what with what we is. have, where we are. What's, yeah. what, so Zelensky was on the news this evening and he started talking about Estonia, Lithuania. Exactly. Just in relation to NATO, Ireland has already served under NATO missions. In peacekeeping, with, with, in a peacekeeping yeah, exactly. capacity. Well, with the UN but there's no threats, threats of cyber, cyberspace as yeah. well, and yeah. the impact that that can have. We need to pool our resources with whoever yeah, we can in to protect something like our because we're, we're hearing more and more about the cyber warfare threat, Paul, and, and how we counter that if we don't have those defence alliances, if, if we don't you know, spend more money essentially on our defences. Would you agree that more money needs to be spent even to, 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 to target something such as the HSE cyber hack that we saw? Well, the HSE cyber attack was, when we discussed that at the time, it was an issue about the HSE and, and not investing in cybersecurity as the HSE. So I think there's a public sector issue there. But to I do think that, in terms there's of our a defence spend well, that's required. Somebody has the capacity to attack I, it in the way in I, which they I did, think in terms of, to be responded to. I think in terms of defence spending, what we need to spend money on is having our defence personnel not living in poverty, which is the current conditions. Mm -hmm. But the, the, the middle option, which is the option that they're kind of likely to go for, the, the report says, well, we could keep it as it is, but that's terrible. We could go to three billion, which we'd really like to do, but we know that's not politically doable. The middle option is 500 million. That's 500 million euros a year. That's a choice. If you do that, if you invest in your fighter jets and your naval ships and all the rest, 
Um, and to do the, the pay about is about 50 million. million, right? But your 500, that's 2,000 homes you choose not to build. And I think it is better as a society we say, no, we won't give our money to the dealers of death and destruction, presumably the US armaments companies who would get these contracts. We're not going to give the money to them. Who do you think but is think, delighted I think about Germany doubling yeah. their defense expenditure? It's I, these big corporations. Yeah. I, Just briefly, you know, Yes, now is not the time in the white heat of this for us to have a considered conversation. But I think what everybody, bar a few few people, realises, all has changed. Yeah. These are not theoretical conversations mm -hmm. anymore. You know, the, the whole landscape is, is different. OK, now. we'll leave it there. Coming up after the break, will Ivana Bacic be leading the Labour Party into their future? Stay with us. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back. A busy week in Irish politics with the shock resignation of Labour leader Alan Kelly. And now all hope for the Labour Party appears to lie with the party's newest TD, Ivana Bacic. But can the Dublin Bay South TD restore the fortunes of the party? My panel is still here with me. And I'm also joined by political correspondent at Barrow Media, Sean Defoe. Uh, welcome along to the programme, Sean. Thanks for having me. Um, let's talk about this. Mm. Where did it all go wrong for Alan Kelly? A good old-fashioned heave. We haven't had one in quite a while. It's been a while since this kind of came together. And it seemed to go wrong for him very, very quickly. This came out of the blue. Like, obviously, there had been talk that there was unhappiness in Labour almost from the moment that he beat Aon O'Riordan in the leadership contest. But there's always talk of unhappiness in different parties. I think where it soured for him over the last while was when the few loyalists that he had, the, the likes of uh, Sean Sherlock, the likes of Duncan Smith, finally kind of turned. And, and I think the big change was that when Alan Kelly was elected, there was always talk that Labour needed to break from the 2011 to 2016 government. They needed to create some separation from that time, but they didn't have an option. All of their options for the leadership were former ministers in that government. And that changed with the by-election win for Ivana Bacic. She became a viable alternative. She became someone who could maybe return them to the sort of social democratic side. We can get into the social democrats links later if you want, of the party and maybe move them forward. I was surprised that he didn't get a chance to at least run an election campaign. He pointed out that he didn't lose any as Labour leader nor internally within mm -hmm. the party. He won four Shannon campaigns and, of course, the by-election for the person who is now going to replace him. So whether or not it will actually change their fortunes, I'd be very, very doubtful. Labour has a big problem and I'm not sure a shuffle at the top is going to change that. I think we can take just a little listen and, and, and watch once more a little of what Alan Kelly had to say last night. I was advised by my parliamentary colleagues on Tuesday morning uh, that they had lost collective confidence in my leadership. 
Uh, this was a surprise to me, but I accepted the decision immediately. Uh, accepted uh, the decision immediately. He didn't have uh, much choice in that decision, Paul Murphy. I suppose from your point of view, you're going to say uh, his term as Environment Minister, the water charges of which, as we know, you were, you were a big opponent really was something that he was never able to recover from. Yeah, I, I do think that defined him for a huge number of, of people. He was the minister responsible for trying to implement the water charges, threatening people that they'd be taken, taken out of their, um, their pay and so on. That's, you know, um, he was also Minister for Housing in the government that built the lowest number of houses of any government in uh, decades. Uh, the government which invited in the REITs and the vulture funds with tax breaks contributing to the situation that we're now in, not to mention the cuts to loan parents allowance and all the rest. So I, I agree with Sean that like, that's the problem, is that the last time Labour were in government, they betrayed all of the promises of Labour's way, not Frankfurt's way, etc, etc. And I think in the past, you know, Labour would do that in the past, but then working class voters had nowhere else to go and would return to Labour. Whereas now, the truth is that those voters have gone uh, to Sinn Féin, which may repeat the same mistake of going into government with Fianna Fáil in the next election and betraying and so on, and to a much lesser extent, to people before profit. Um, you know, a, a lot's been made of the fact that, that, that it was that spell in government between 2011 and, um, and, and 2016 that really did it. We know we did it, that did it for them in terms of numbers coming out of that election. They went from, what, 37 TDs down to, down to six. Mm. Um, uh, would you agree that, that, that that's really the, put the nail in the coffin? And they, they, they are in a really difficult situation in being able to recover from that, Fergal. Yeah, look, I think there's a huge gap in the Irish political market for sane socialism, if you like, if you want to call it that, for a kind of social democratic uh, kind of or constituency. Alan is a decent man. He's literally just after leaving uh, his position. That was a tough gig to watch the people who took him out standing behind him uh, on, on the plinth in, in Leinster House. Uh, heaves are deeply unpleasant. The scars take ages to heal. I wouldn't be galloping past the scar tissue that this has created in the party. But... Yes, it is the case that that Labour Party had to make decisions that in their right minds in normal circumstances they wouldn't uh, make, given the situation uh, economically we found ourselves in that. Yeah, time. and then did they have to, well, many would say that they didn't, they didn't have to make those decisions, but, but anyway, that's uh, neither here nor there well, now. But they, yeah. they didn't recover from that in the polls, as we know. And they say that's the reason that Alan Kelly you know, had to go because yeah. they have to look for that fresh face. But, but yeah. is it true that they, that they will actually be able to recover from this? Like, is Ivana Batchik, the name that's been put out there, going to be able to do this and turn around the Labour Party's fortunes? Just a couple of things. There was a series of binary options that had to be made in 2011, so I think the decisions did have to be made. I don't think an individual can change a party's fortunes. Where you create momentum for Labour is the big question. It's difficult to see where. Um, You've also got the situation there where five of the seven TDs are still former ministers in that government. So shedding that image yeah, straight I mean, away. The, you... the, the public adjudicated that, that government in 2016. They adjudicated on the, on the next government in 2020. And mm -hmm. Alan Kelly was given a job thereafter by his then colleagues. And I'm sure he'd big aspirations, he'd big hopes and big ideas. They didn't materialise. It's a tough game. He was taken out. That's their decision. That's, you know, they live or die by that. Let, let them do as they will. I think on a personal level, very difficult for anyone to be taken out in the way that he was uh, and you have to feel for him and his family in a personal capacity and I hope he, he, he recovers from him, okay. gets on with his job and, and, and he can find 
a rewarding aspect of his job into the future. But you have to acknowledge that, you know, harping back to 2011, you know, I could harp back to our unfortunate election in 2011, but you've got to get on with it and you've got to, you know, meet yeah, but for the, the demands that's placed upon you with it, policies to, for to the meet Labour the Party, it is today. difficult to, to get on from Barry Cowan because they have to find a way now of, of finding people who will vote for them because they trust them, Alison. That's the difficulty there, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, but I'm, in, I'm, in, I'm inclined to agree with Barry in terms of you can get hung up as a parliamentary party, Labour parliamentary party member, on the public not forgiving you without looking at what really yeah. is the issue. I think the issue really is who are Labour, what do they stand for? Mm -hmm. And uh, I cover politics. Uh, it's what I do in my in my day-to-day my -day working life, and I'm not sure. So I don't know um, how that translates to the public or to the ordinary voter. Um, so who, I mean, to, to try and answer your question, mm -hmm. who do you think they are? Well, they say, and I've heard that uh, since the announcement uh, yesterday, last night, I've heard a lot of, you know, Labour stands for the worker. Um, but that's, it's a bit anodyne, really, that, isn't it? In, 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 in what way? You can go around and say that, but you have to, you have to sell it to the worker that you're, you're there and there, but it, that you're working on their behalf. And I think that it's... Um, you know, the political landscape has changed. Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, you know, get a lot less of the vote than they did 10 years ago. Um, Sinn Féin are getting far more, you know, the Social Democrats, you know, that it's, so they, I don't think they've adapted. But I would just like to say that in all my years covering politics, I've never seen a heave like it. I mean, we, we know that Alan Kelly has a reputation for being hot-headed and this idea that on Tuesday, you know, a few people said to me, want to go? And he said, Grant, where's my hat? I'm out the door. And that bit of it, that bit of it, I have to say, does, does fascinate me. And I do, I would like to say as well that politics is a tough game. It's, it's very difficult to find and yourself in that position. And clearly uh, no one knew where to look um, at that particular press briefing. And God knows where they looked when they went for the pint afterwards. <laughs> uh, uh, there was no one available uh, from the Labour Party to come on and join us on the programme tonight. Um, to move on now to Sinn Féin woes this week and the departure of Claire TD, Violet Ann Wynne. Uh, Sean, remind us a little about what happened here and um, why she was so un unhappy with the Sinn Féin and ultimately made that decision uh, to leave. Yeah, I think Sinn Féin will be very happy that Labour have kind of overshadowed things and that mm -hmm. the, the news cycle in general this week has, has been kind of forgiving. Mary Lee McDonald still actually hasn't made any statement on, on Violet Ann Wynne's departure. It was the deputy whip, um, Denise Mitchell, who, who did it. Basically what Violet Ann Wynne said in her resignation letter was that there had been kind of a, a campaign to, to undermine her within the party, sort of a campaign of aggression that she hadn't been given any help after being elected. And she comes from a place that's very different from a lot of politicians in many ways, is where we should be trying to attract people into Dáil Éireann. She came from the Dáil to the Dáil, as she would say herself, uh, mother of six children, including one very recently born, which was uh, an, an unplanned pregnancy, and faced a lot of difficulties, I think, in her life mm. that a lot of people wouldn't have. She says that the staff Sinn Féin hired weren't her choices. They were they were put on her and didn't work the full week that they were contracted to, or kind of party grandees or, or party choices for who they were put in. Uh, now, Sinn Féin hasn't really said a huge amount on this or, or rebutted a huge amount. Certainly publicly, there's been lots of background yeah. briefings saying that, look, she went through a lot of staff and that they tried to help her down in Clare and it never quite worked out. Um, but it, Violet Ann Wynne, I think that the turning point mm -hmm. from her as well, uh, she said that Mary Lou McDonald never texted her to congratulate her on the birth of her baby, whereas Leo Varadkar sent her quite a nice letter and that 
that was just kind of one last breaking point for yeah. her in a series of things that went wrong. And again, on this one, we did ask um, a Sinn Féin representative to come on the programme. None were available for us tonight. We do, in fact, though, have a statement from them and they just reissued that statement um, commenting on that decision of Deputy Violet Ann Wynne to leave the party. Um, we have a statement from Sinn Féin Deputy Whip Denise Mitchell who was saying, uh, which we have heard, I'm so very sorry to hear of Violet Ann's decision. She was a valued member of the Sinn Féin Oireachtas team and the party worked extremely hard over the last two years to resolve challenges at constituency level and that work was continuing. Um, it was interesting though, wasn't it? What, Leah Radker sending that letter of congratulations, like, you know, would that be, would that be standard um, policy to... to God, it's not for me to second guess someone else's goodwill, for sure. But uh, I mean, Sinn Féin are the best communicators in the political business, arguably, you could say. They're also the best non-communicators. And when it comes to holding the line or not holding the line, uh, they're just doing what they've been very good at uh, over, the, over the years. I think it's entirely appropriate to, to wish someone well on the birth of a child in the, in the doll, in the house. Yeah, uh, it is just interesting coming when, when, Mary, when Mary Lou MacDonald um, didn't, in fact. But, you know, on this one... Um, uh, Barry, you know, uh, the argument being made that she didn't receive support at local level. Is it challenging for new TDs when they find themselves in that situation um, that she said she was looking for reassurance then at, at national level and she wasn't getting it? Um, the argument maybe being made by Sinn Féin is, you know, this is just the experience. It's, it's, it's the rough yeah, and tumble of look, politics. Look, any, it's the any, way it goes. Any new job has its own challenges and you need to be taken by the hand. You need to be helped and assisted and put an office in place and be in a position to provide a service that you're committed to uh, when you met the electorate in the first place. The facts that I see, I've just looked at this before I came on, in 2014, local election, Sinn Féin won about in the region 160 seats. By 2019, 10% of them had left. Um, in 2016 on, they've lost three TDs and one senator. Um, and now we have this, this, this week. And all of them cite bullying, isolation, psychological warfare. They're the facts. They speak for themselves. They speak about a culture that exists in that organisation, in the way in which it does its business. It doesn't sit well yeah, with me. I don't is, vote is for them. Happy in I, other they won't lose and, any sweat over me. Yeah, not is everyone, for them. I but many the, other people want to consider the question. The, in the question in, in, in their defence is, is everyone happy in, in other parties? We hear a lot of, well, we've had hear a lot of discontent and, and there and as well. And Martin alluded to when, when, when he got into a confrontation situation on an issue that maybe shouldn't have veered into that area at all. But look, of course we've had our problems. We've had tribunals that have exposed and humiliated many of it within our parties. But they've been right. faced up to, they've been dealt with, and we've moved on and we're doing our best to provide the sort of governance that okay. we espouse to in and relation to the programme for government. We'll have to leave it there. My thanks to Paul Murphy and Barry Cowan. The rest of my panel will be staying with us for a look at some of the other big stories from the week. Welcome back, Fergal, Alison and Sean have stayed with me to look back at some of the other big stories of the week. Um, this one linked in with the invasion um, of Ukraine, uh, Sean, and it's around uh, fuel prices, what we're mm. paying at the pump. It's also to do with the cost of living and excise duty is now on the table 
as something that could be slashed to help people out. Yeah, a big move, a uh, big announcement really from Leo Varadkar. Now, all he said was that they're going to look at it, but that is somewhere the government hasn't gone before with this. Mm. They've kind of left VAT and excise on the table, VAT for reason of European uh, rules and excise because they didn't really want to go near it. But when you see the prices and the way they've gone up in the mm. last week, I filled up the car at 172 on Sunday. I went past the same garage earlier today and it was 185. It's 14 mm. cent in four days. That's absolutely crazy. And it's only going one way. We've seen a top two euro for the, for the premium petrol, but still uh, that's where it's going to go over the next while. And the government's going to have to do something. I think today was the staging post from Leo Varadkar to say, OK, we said we weren't doing any more for the budget, but mm. the Ukrainian situation has really changed things and we're going to have to step in again. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting because it's something that the government wasn't going to budge on. They said it's, it's difficult to do it with the kind of European arrangements that we have in place about, you know, and that there would be no mini budget in any case um, that this suite of measures to address the cost of living um, will have to do. That's all changed now, but it seems to be coming at European level, Fergal. That's right, yeah. Well, I mean, the fiscal rules were suspended during COVID in, in many cases anyway. I think the, all, the, all bets are off. Post-COVID, people got back in their cars. They didn't get onto public transport. Uh, and it's not just here. Like, uh, and just to, like the states have two bills in the, in the Senate and the House of Representatives to try to stop all import of Russian oil. There's a story behind this. And the reason Biden isn't uh, supporting it is because he's afraid of his life of the price of petrol at his pumps. So the, 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 the petrol and the, pre, the price of gas as it is over there mm. is a highly political issue here. Uh, and I mean, for a 14 cent jump in a week, that's, that's pretty phenomenal. As I say, people are back in their cars. They didn't get back onto public transport. So it's it, not surprising to me that he's invoked this, to be but honest. It, it, but it's something that really, you know, the government have stood very firm on. And, and we've heard the, the lobby groups and consumer groups saying, you know, you're paying on your on your litre of petrol you're paying 60% of it is on taxes and excise and all these other things that the government has some control over. Yeah but I think it's not I think if one of the things that has happened over the last two years of the pandemic is we became more used to the government providing this mm -hmm. idea of, of a big state and now we're in another state of emergency if, if you like um, that we're being told is going to get far worse and we're not sure how long it's going to last for so people would naturally turn to the government then and I think there's a political realisation um, that in terms of particularly the cost of fuel um, uh, that people simply are, are unable to to afford that but we're going to I mean the warnings, how we're going the warnings to warnings have been there as well that and, and, and it was it was known back in December yeah. the situation that was that was happening no, on the Ukraine-Russian border yeah, but and I, how this may play out. But I mean, no matter what, I think it's even if it's it, it really it was known and look, sure, all the years people say the last number of years that there was appeasement of Putin and why did that? You know, until mm. it happened, really, you know, the 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 the, 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 the impact of the shot. I think right up to the end, people were hoping that it wouldn't happen. But you'll also even be looking at the price of grain. Everything is going to. I think yeah. we're in a very lucky in a, in. It's, it's a kind of an ironic thing that after COVID, we have this boom going on in the economy that at least we, we have that happening mm. because there, there really is going to be ultimately be, be quite the bill to be paid. Mm. Uh, let's talk about some of the sanctions, in particular, though, the sporting sanctions on Russia, because they've made the headlines this week. We've seen Roman Abramovich selling off Chelsea um, after, you know, to kind of save himself. Now, he did do a very 
slick PR yeah. move around that, didn't he? Um, yeah, in, in offering to help. Setting up the trust is kind of a clever way to do it, isn't victim, it? And saying victims that, of war. And it, yeah, well, it, there's an interesting language in it as well. It's the net profits from the sale will mm. go towards all victims mm. of war and that yeah. on the Ukrainian and the Russian side. But of course, he had loaned Chelsea 1.5 billion euro over the lifetime there. And net, does that mean he's getting it back in the net no, profit? It's so, so vague. It's such a vague statement to go in, but a very kind of, sort of clever way for, for his own PR marketing machine as he is terrified of being sanctioned himself. And you see it happening all over the world. I was listening to an interesting debate on Off the Ball on Newstalk earlier about whether these kind of sanctions or having these world events actually highlights the atrocities that are going on there. You know, if you have a, the World Cup in Qatar, for example, is it beneficial because it highlights what's going on oh, there? That's or are you Peter, just can I just say in? that that is classic male self-serving <laughs> sport fan claptrap. I mean, the amount of people who've died building these stadiums mm. in the ridiculous heat in Qatar, they wouldn't be there and dying in the first place if there wasn't going to be a, a soccer. I mean, FIFA is rotten to the core. We know this and we've even seen it in the light. It took sure them we, so long to come well, out. Well, we saw them as well you know, having to do that big U-turn because they weren't they were willing to say, you know, Russia, go ahead and play. You know, don't, don't yeah. have your flag out and call yourself something else, but you can still play. And they had to change that. Yeah. But also, you know, we've seen of late the, the GP, the, the Grand Prix, there's an awful lot of money in that. They said, no, it won't go to Russia this year. And in fact, we're going to stall that contract altogether. Yeah, I think Gazprom's investment in FIFA was 40 million uh, at one point, and if not more, because you've just hit the nail on the head, Claire, it's all about money. Uh, and it's about something else as well. I wouldn't underestimate how hard soft power can be and how effective it can be, because I don't think for a second all the Russian people, if they knew half the truth, would be behind what's going on. Uh, in Ukraine or if they understood it to the extent that if, if they were being told the truth, in other words. But you get them on football, you get them on the Paralympics, you get them on, on entertainment, uh, you get them on Amazon. Apple, Apple Pay. Apple, mm. Amazon, Airbnb, Airbus, Boeing, Exxon, Shell, BP have left 25 billion worth of assets in Russia. Um, well, it's YouTube, the people with money within Russia who will then pile the pressure on Putin and... and uh, see where that goes or even from the, here. Look, even the ordinary people seeing what's happened, the ruble, you know, I mean, it's, yeah. it's, 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 and I mean, you'd feel and sorry it, for, for and, as Fergal and, said, not really knowing what's going on and being hit in that way, but. Yeah, and their ability then to, to rise up and protest against all of that. But that is it from us. My thanks to Fergal, Alison, and to Sean from all the late team here. Good night, take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.